Welcome to Mommy Heal Thyself. We feature guests who provide you with the tools, resources, and strategies you need to say no to a life of pain and suffering from all forms of preventable disease, toxic drugs, and unnecessary surgeries. We hope to inspire you to boldly reclaim your ability to heal and to serve the ones you love. Welcome, ladies, to another episode of Mommy Heal Thyself. Today, we are going to tread into some interesting waters, and I would like to start the conversation because we're going to be talking about certain issues that a lot of us have taken for granted the way we think. And I'm going to challenge that, or should I say our guest is going to challenge some of our ideas of who we are as women, as mothers. My guest today is Erica Commissar. She is a clinical social worker, a psychoanalyst, and a parent guidance expert who has been in private practice in New York City for over 30 years. She's a graduate of Columbia University and New York University and Georgetown University, sorry, and the New York Freudian Society. Ms. Commissar is a psychological consultant bringing parenting workshops to clinics, schools, corporations, and childcare settings. She is a contributor to the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and the New York Daily News. She's also a contributing editor for the Institute of Family Studies and appears regularly on Fox and Friends and Fox 5 News. Erica is the author of Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters, and Chicken Little, The Sky Isn't Falling, Raising Resilient Adolescents in the New Age of Anxiety. Oh, wow. I'm so excited to have you here, Erica. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. Now, we're going to get into the nuts and bolts of what you were talking about in terms of re-looking at motherhood and the importance of motherhood, especially for the first three years of a child's life. I'm curious as to how you got into this particular field. What was coming up in your world that made you say, hmm, I need to take a look at this? Well, originally it was because I was a social worker in a clinic in Brooklyn. Um, and I was working with parents and children and foster parents and children. Um, and I found that there was some basic uh, lack of knowledge of nurturing and parenting that existed in previous generations, interestingly. And I felt the need to do psychoeducational. I felt like I couldn't treat them psychodynamically or in therapy without also doing some psychoeducational groups for, for mothers and parents. And so I started doing them and I loved them. And I love talking to mothers about mothering and, um, and it really helped and it supported the treatment tremendously. So that's really how it started. And that was about 35 years ago. Wow. Um, and since then, and then I went on to do parenting workshops, you know, as alongside my practice, because I'm a psychoanalyst, but I started doing parenting workshops in big corporations, trying to bring it to all kinds of people, you know, from all kinds of backgrounds. Um, but what I was really seeing about 20 years ago, in my practice, because I've been in practice for about 32, 30, yeah, three years. What I was really seeing in my private practice was um, that there was this tidal wave of mental illness in children and adolescents that, um, 
you know, I found the need to explain to myself um, and to others because um, it was uh, the, the, the rates of younger and younger children being diagnosed and medicated for behavioral problems, for ADHD, for depression, anxiety, even very young children were killing themselves in a way that we had never seen before. Adolescents were killing themselves in, in great numbers. Suicidal ideation had gone up, psychotic events had gone up. So it, it was something where I could see it coming. No one was really talking about it then. And no one, no one was talking about the causes of it. There was a lot of medicating children, just quiet their pain, like shush, shush, shush. You know how mothers say shh to babies when they're crying. I'm like, no, 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 don't say shh. Try to soothe the baby and help them figure out what's going on, but don't shush them. We were shushing children. And so, um, yeah, I started looking at all the research, the, the, the epigenetics, the neuroscience research from that started back in the 90s that is still going on, wonderful neuroscience research, uh, psychoanalytic reading again, and a lot of attachment research. And I found that what I was seeing in my practice was true, which is that um, based on all this research, that the absence of mothers in children's lives or the deprioritizing of mothering in children's lives had caused children to go off the rails, mm. quite literally. Um, that we had, you know, in trying to create an equitable society and trying to create a society where women had opportunities and choices and we had forgotten about children, essentially. Um, and although it's important to focus on women and our rights and, you know, goodness, where would we be without that? Um, in forgetting children, we did a lot of damage. In our wake of our freedom, we left a lot of damage. And so we don't want to take back our freedom. We want to have choices, but we have to take a good long look at what we've done uh, and try to repair it now. So what is it that is so essential in the mothering process that is important to the development of a child to avoid things like the anxiety, the depression, and all of those types of situations? So children, as you know, children, because you're a doctor, children are born neurologically fragile, emotionally mm -hmm. fragile. Um, in our desire to be independent ourselves as women, we projected onto children that they were independent too. Mm -hmm. That way we could leave them earlier and earlier. The reality is that they're not capable of being independent or self-sufficient or regulating their emotions or dealing with stress. They're incredibly neurologically vulnerable and fragile. Mm -hmm. In other parts of the world, mothers carry babies for a full year on their bodies, on their front first, then on their back, but what we call skin to skin contact, because what it does is it regulates all of the biological and emotional parts of a child that they can't do for themselves. It buffers them from stress, which keeps the amygdala or the stress regulating system quiet, which is important in the first year. It regulates their emotions. So if you see babies in other countries where babies are worn on their mother's bodies or kept close physically to their mothers, they don't cry as much. Western babies cry a lot. Uh, and they cry a lot because we force them into this position of having to develop these defenses at a very young age, 
which then become things like attachment disorders and pathological defenses. So um, the first three years is what we call a critical period of brain development. By the end of three years, 85% of a child's right brain or the social emotional part of their brain is developed. In that three-year period, they're very sensitive to their environment and their environment is their mother, meaning their primary attachment figure is still usually the mother. And so that person has the greatest impact on helping that child to learn to regulate their emotions and learn to manage stress in the future. It's only by really the mother doing that for them, kind of like dialysis does for someone who has kidney issues. It's only by the mother doing it for them that after that three-year period, they can then start to internalize the ability to do it for themselves. But we've gotten it all wrong, you see, because we've basically attributed to babies adult-like characteristics hmm. that they don't possess. So some people will say, well, you know, I can put my child in daycare and they will have somebody that can take care of them just as, just as good as I can while I go and work. Is there something wrong with my thought, thought that way? Yeah, babies don't form arbitrary attachments to adults. And if they do, that's actually a problem. Um, we don't want babies to form in, indiscriminate attachments to strangers. We want them to be focused on a primary attachment figure, which is their sense, their deep sense of security in the world. Um, so there are in other parts of the world something called alloparenting, which is um, often used in, as an excuse in this country for daycare. Alloparenting is when a mother is surrounded by extended family, mm -hmm. grandmothers, aunts, sisters, um, cousins, next door neighbors, who you call aunt, um, who, these people are more invested in that child emotionally, more of a similar investment to the parent because they're going to be in that child's life forever. But even in alloparenting countries, countries where mothers uh, have other people that are alternative attachment figures for the child, you'll notice that in those countries, when the baby is in distress, the baby is handed back to the mother, not forcefully managed by a stranger but who is a stranger even a grandmother will say oh the baby needs you um, the mm -hmm. grandmother will bring the baby to the mother to breastfeed or bring the baby to the mother to soothe in this country we've perverted that we've created mm -hmm. some perversion of that that any any old person can take care of a baby babies form a very unique attachment you know we're animals we're, we're mammals no different than any other mammal and we form very specific attachments, not indiscriminate ones. And when we do form indiscriminate attachments, it's not healthy. Hmm. You know, one of the things that I, I love about what you're saying is that it's really reinforcing the importance of motherhood. You know, it's not just, oh, you give birth to a baby and then you, you know, you hand it off to somebody else that's just as good as you are, really and truly, the mother is indispensable. 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 Hmm. You know, we, we used to think that it was just a matter of nursing, you know, breastfeeding. And so they came up with the invention of, well, we can do the breast pump. And therefore you can just expel your breast milk 
and then we don't need you anymore, mom. You're you're just the you know the local cow that's squirting out the milk. That's all we need from you. Somebody else can take it from there. But again, you're emphasizing the fact that that relationship between the mother and the new baby for the first three years is critical. And I would like to add to that, that it is so critical to the point that you can't make up for it later on. When the damage is done, it's done, it's in there. Can you speak more about why that time period, that specific time period is so critical that, that those things that happen in the development process, once it's hijacked at that age, you know, just like folic acid in pregnancy, you know, if, if it wasn't available in the first couple of months of, of pregnancy, even if you mega dose it at the end of pregnancy, the damage has already been done. Well, first, again, as a physician, I mean, I, I, I know you can and I can appreciate the importance of breast milk for its immunological properties. But as you say, breastfeeding is much more than just the milk. It has to do with the attachment. And so, you know, you know, we're made in such a way that it's very hard to feed a baby with our breast without tuning into that baby. Uh, it's very hard to feed a baby with your breast without, I mean, mothers have, have challenged this by looking at their phones and, <laughs> and, and looking at TV and doing things that mothers never did before that while they were breastfeeding. But it's still very hard because you're actually, the, the baby is right there. So it's very hard not to tune into the baby. So we're sort of made in such a way that it forces us one, it forces us to have skin-to-skin -skin contact, even if we're not looking at the baby, even better if we're looking at and tuning into the baby. But we're made in such a way that it forces us to attach to our babies, whereas bottle feeding, you can stick the bottle, and I've seen it many times, mm -hmm. in the baby's face, and the baby can face out, and there's absolutely no contact. It's sort of sanitary, absolutely sanitized, no skin-to-skin no physical touch, literally, it's, it can be like that. So what we know is that breastfeeding is a lot more than the milk, it has to do with the attachment. Um, in, in terms of repair, I like the word repair, because sometimes if we darn a sock, it makes it stronger. The issue with repair is you have to get to that repair as quickly as possible. Um, but you know, the, the thing that we understand is that the brain is plastic. It can heal to a certain extent, but it will never heal completely. It will never heal fully. There will always be something there. So, you know, and what, what that is to say, to give mothers hope who didn't, weren't there for the first three years. I wrote a second book called Chicken Little, The Sky Isn't Falling, Raising Resilient Adolescents in the New Age of Anxiety. That's about the fact that there's two critical periods of brain development, zero to three and nine to 25. In those periods, it leaves a lot of room for repair and everything in between three and nine leaves a lot of room for repair. But can you repair everything? No, you can't repair everything, but you can repair. And the sooner you get to the repair, the better off your child will be. So let's talk about that. What are some things that we as mothers can do if we were not able to be there for our children in those critical years of zero to three? Well, a lot of it has to do with um, what you didn't do in the first three years you do now. Um, meaning, you know, your child may not be an infant 
uh, or a toddler anymore. But what you can do is you can do a lot of emotional regulation. Um, and what that means is really being attuned to children's emotions, not dismissing their emotions, not ignoring their emotions, but really being, um, you could say, being uh, a receptive person to their emotions, receiving them, and then being able to uh, communicate, translate those emotions back to them. And we call that reflection. So reflection is what you do with babies. When you see that they're sad, you look sad. You look like they're looking in a mirror. So what we say is that a baby's first, so what happens in the first three years is not just emotional regulation, but is the beginning of the development of the self. And mm -hmm. what that means is when a baby looks at a mother's face, when they're sad and the mother's face is sad, for the first time in their lives, that baby sees themselves. Mm. They can see themselves in the eyes, the reflective eyes of their mother. Mm. But if a mother has what we call discrepant emotions, where the mother doesn't reflect the baby's emotions, meaning if the baby is sad, but the mother can't bear the baby's sadness and goes and tries to cheer the baby up and come on, you're fine, let's go. Yeah. That's called discrepant emotions. And what that does is then the baby looks at the mother's face and can't find themselves. And they get confused. And mm -hmm. it doesn't build um, emotional knowledge. It doesn't build a sense of self. It doesn't build on the idea of, how. okay, how do I regulate this emotion of sadness? First, it needs to be accepted and it needs to be identified. And then I can work my way through it to get back mm -hmm. to what we call homeostasis. So reflecting baby's emotions, being as physically and emotionally present as possible. So you are the go-to person for the most part when they're in distress. And what mothers do in the first three years is they are from moment to moment, soothing babies when they're in distress. And that's what we call emotional regulation. So we keep baby's emotions from going too high and too low. It doesn't mean they're flat, you know, all of us as human beings should be more in this range, more like more like sailing in the Caribbean than yeah. sailing in the Atlantic or the Pacific. Right. Um, so we don't want to be sailing in the Atlantic or the Pacific. We want to be in the Caribbean. And this is what mothers do all day long by soothing babies in distress. So this is another thing you can do is you are helping that child. And by the way, you do this straight throughout adolescence, helping that child to regulate their emotions. Hmm. So you said that this journey actually started when you started noticing things 30 years ago. What is it like now in comparison to 30 years ago? Have things gotten better, worse? What are the signs that make you think this? I mean, it's gotten worse because even though I have a voice, I mean, my book came out about 2017, so about seven years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, and so one would ask, what, you know, what's happened in those seven years? Have I been able to make an impact? I mean, my hopefulness is that the people I touch mm -hmm. spread the word to the people they touch. And so that's, you know, one thing we know in our society is that change is a process. And so, but, but in terms of the statistics, the statistics have gotten worse. I mean, the numbers have gotten worse. We're still shushing our children. Uh, we're still telling our children that they should take medication and that there's something radically wrong with them as people. Mm 
it's not them, it's us. Mm -hmm. And so we, as parents, we have not wanted to, as society and as parents, not just parents are at fault here, but society's messaging, policymakers, economists, I blame them because their messaging is so clearly money matters and children don't matter. And so, and we've bought into this hook, line and sinker, right? We say work matters more than our families. Mm -hmm. And so as long as we believe this, the statistics will keep going through the roof. Hmm. I wanna emphasize what you're saying in terms of the messaging that we have, which is that money matters more than our families. Because the reality is that for hundreds of years, people have had to choose between making money and taking care of their children. <coughs> and some way, somehow, prior to say the 1960s, we were able to get along with much less in the family and take care of not one child, not two child children, but sometimes four, five, six, even you know, my former husband, he came from a family of 12. His mother was not making that much money. Yeah. So I think we keep on telling ourselves that the money is what is important because with the money, we can get the stuff to give our kids, quote unquote, the things that we didn't have in life. And I'm wondering if really and truly we need to start to think about well, what about giving our kids the things that we did have in life, some of us? Yeah. You, you know, I, I, I say that the poorest in America actually stay home with their children. This is what's interesting. The poorest in America are not what we're talking about. You would think that's the issue, but that mm -hmm. actually isn't the issue because the poorest in America have, I mean, this is not ideal, mind you, but it, what's interest, that's, there's an interesting kind of gap here, which is, the wealthiest and the poorest have can can be home with their children, but everybody in between, what I call the working poor, the middle class, mm. um, there is a gap there because you know I'm I'm going to say, and I know people who listen to this are going to say, well, we don't have any support in those years like they do in other countries. You know, this is one of the things. One of the reasons I wrote the book was to try to change policy. You know, um, that. There's people in Washington, they they talk a big game about how family matters, but they really don't care uh, because they don't want to spend money on it. So how we know that we care is we're willing to spend money on it. That's how we know what we value. So when someone comes to me for therapy, it's expensive to go to therapy. But if you value it, you spend money on it. If you're going to spend money on that, maybe you don't take a vacation or maybe you don't get a new car or Right. So um, or maybe you don't get a new, you know, new new coat that winter or but mm. it's what we value that we spend money on, which I think is really interesting. So what we're really saying is we don't value our children as much as we value other things. And as you were saying, when we look at other cultures, other communities that <laughs> have babies, just like we do, one of the things yeah. that they. Hold on to, well, everything is shifting in this world they used to hold on to, like when I was in Japan, is that extended family, you know, the mother, or maybe yeah. an auntie, or someone else who is not necessarily out in the work field, but can take care of the child 
in a relationship that is going to extend long beyond nine to five and long beyond those couple of years. It's a relationship that is for life. And even if we look at uh, our history as African-Americans in this country, we didn't have government taking care of us. We didn't have government saying, oh, we're gonna give you a check, you know, prior to the 1960s. What it was were communities were coming together. Women were coming together, helping each other out. You know, okay, I'll, I'll go and work at this point in time so that you can stay home with your child and, you know, swapping things out. But now we're in a society where we're so isolated we don't have those extended families and we have created a vacuum for ourselves that lacks the support, which is why we have our organization, It Takes a Village, to encourage people and give people the ability to recreate that village structure, starting with the family, extending that family. Maybe instead of putting mom in a nursing home, you know, have mom come and live with you. <laughs> Who knows? We, we've traded one institution, which was a healthy institution, which was the institution of family, and we've traded it for the institution that's lying to us, because basically, government is lying to you when they tell you it's good for children to go into daycare. Uh, they need socialization at the age of one and two. No, they don't. They need attachment security until the age of three. They need socialization after the age of three and only incrementally. So, you know, when you trade a really healthy institution for an institution that, you know, is is basically telling you things that may not be true, but you're buying into it. Right. And so that's really a problem um, is that we 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 basically gave up the institution of family and we, we lost our instincts. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, the original title of my first book was called The Lost Instinct and the publishers liked being there better, but I still think The Lost Instinct describes, right, what really is happening is that women are getting generationally removed from their instincts, right? So we know, um, you know, uh, I don't know if you've ever interviewed Kimberly Seals Allers, Allers Seals. She's a, she's a black woman who writes about how, particularly in the black community, women have lost breastfeeding as something they do. Um, that they were told it's better to bottle feed and go out to work. And, you know, even if they're home, it's better to bottle feed. So they stop breastfeeding, particularly black women in the black community. Stuff. So she's fighting to get breastfeeding back into the black community. She's wonderful. If you haven't interviewed her, I recommend her. But she um, but, you know, this is the kind of thing that we were told. And I can't tell you how many people come to see me in my practice. And the first thing they ask is, you know, we believed that daycare was actually better for our children, that the government and that institutional care could could better raise our children than we could, that it was giving them something. We And then I said, oh, my God, are we in Romania? Like, what is this? Of course, it's not better than what you can give your child in those early days. So this is what kind of what we're dealing with. It is it is opening a can of worms. And as you said, we are going to start looking even into the breastfeeding issue because now there's really weird messaging going out that's saying, oh, we shouldn't shame women who can't breastfeed. So they're doing this kind of gaslighting to make us rethink breastfeeding. And as you said, I'm also curious as to what is happening 
to our mothery, mothery, <laughs> a mothering instinct where you have more and more women that say, ah, oh, I, I don't even feel an urge to breastfeed or I don't feel an urge to be there with my child. I, I would rather go out and work than be at home with my child. So that's what we used to think of as just being natural motherly instinct is kind of fading. And it's, it's very, very interesting to question, is that because of what has been done in terms of creating the epigenetics dynamics and or is it because of the messaging that has been so pervasive over the past 50 years? Yes and yes. So what we know is that attachment disorders are passed down generationally. They're generationally expressed. So the, uh, Michael Meany did some important research on licking and grooming that animals who licked and groomed their young passed on to their young the ability to lick and groom their young. But if mm -hmm. they didn't lick and groom their young, they didn't pass that down. Um, because they didn't pass down oxytocin receptors. So oxytocin mm -hmm. is a love hormone mm -hmm. and we need that love hormone to connect with our children. We produce it when we breastfeed, when we give birth, when we raise our children, when we're sensitive, empathic nurturing is tied to oxytocin. It mm -hmm. helps us to bond. We know that you need oxytocin receptors. So you, it's like baseball. You throw mm -hmm. the oxytocin, but you need someone with a catcher's mitt on the other side. The oxytocin receptors in the brain are the catcher's mitt. And mm -hmm. what we know is that you can lose generationally, you can lose oxytocin. Now they can be re-stimulated, right? They can be repaired and re-stimulated, but we have generationally passed down attachment disorders to our daughters who then pass it down to their daughters, who pass it down to their daughters. And that is what we're seeing. Wow. You know, that answers the question that I've been wondering about, why is it that so many women, and it seems to be more and more women each year are having difficulty with nursing. And I think it would probably go under the same <laughs> category of, if you were not nursed, then it makes it more difficult for you to turn around and nurse and subsequent generation after generation after generation. It's mind-boggling. So, so what we know is that cortisol and oxytocin are in an inverse relationship. Mm -hmm. So the more stressed, cortisol is the stress hormone, the higher the levels of the stress hormone, the lower the levels of, of oxytocin. And oxytocin is related to prolactin and and milk production. So what's interesting is that when we don't produce oxytocin in great amounts, we're not bonding with our baby, but we're also not as easily producing breast milk. So when I hear mothers say, I don't produce enough breast milk, I'm like, well, let's talk about the conflicts that you feel, the stress that you're under, because women don't realize that when they're stressed about you know, going back to work in six weeks. And first of all, if you know that, you know, you're in love with someone, but they're going to go live in another country in six weeks and leave you, are you going to get fully attached to them? No, you're going to hold something back. So this is what's happening to mothers. They're, they're under great stress to return to work right away. And so they don't open themselves up emotionally to get fully attached. And they don't realize that their bodies are acting on behalf of their emotions. Hmm. We have a mind-body connection, a somatic connection between our emotions and our bodily functions, right? Which is why if we're stressed, we get headaches, we get stomach aches, we get back aches. 
In this case, if we're stressed, we don't produce breast milk or we produce it in very small quantities, right? Oxytocin also helps us with pain, interestingly. And breastfeeding for some mothers can be painful in the beginning. Their, their nipples, they get used. It's, it sort of anesthetizes some of the pain, gives us energy. I mean, it does a lot of good things for us. But what's interesting is if you're not producing it in great quantities, all you're feeling are the negative parts. So yes, the answer is yes and yes. Epigenetics wise, we are dampening our our hormones, our neurotransmitters that impact our hormones, we're, we're impacting our, which impact our nurturing behaviors. Yeah. And one of the things that you just said that I really want to um, close <laughs> out the show with today is for us as women to realize that those years of zero to three are not only critical for our baby, but they're also critical for us. And I know we would have to go into a whole nother show to talk about this. But really and truly, it's not just about us, quote unquote, sacrificing ourselves for these little gremlins that are just sucking us dry, but rather there's a lot that we receive in the bonding process, a lot that we receive in terms of having our child close to us that we have undervalued. We don't even think about how much we get from those critical years of zero to three. Ah, Erica, I tell you, you have just brought about so many insights. What do you think is the most critical thing for us as mothers to take from this conversation today? Listen to your instincts. Listen to that voice in your head that says, I don't want to leave my baby. Don't listen to your spouse. Don't listen to your boss. Don't listen to your friends. Don't listen to society. Listen, deeply, deeply listen to that voice in your head that what we call maternal preoccupation that says, I want to be with my baby. Don't shut it down. Don't shut off your guilt. Guilt is an important signal feeling. Listen, it's there, listen. And have the courage to look into your child's eyes and listen to your child. Yeah. I, that's, that's the thing that I've gotten from what you've said to stop hushing our children. Yeah. Allow them to speak to us, to have the courage to hear what they're saying. Sometimes it's not what we want to hear, but sometimes it's what we need to hear. Yeah. Whew. Thank you so very much for being with us today, Erica. And ladies, I'm going to include in the show notes information about how you can reach out to Erica so that you can have more insights into how to navigate this field, how to negotiate what you need, what your child need with what other people are saying and demanding or commanding from you. And also how to repair the damage that may have been done because we just didn't know. We did the best that we could with what we knew at that time. And so now that we know better, we're gonna be able to do better. Until next time, ladies. I wish you peace and blessings. Bye. Bye. Thank you for tuning in for this episode of Mommy Heal Thyself. If you like what we're doing here, please share, subscribe, like us, and leave a comment. Your feedback is very much appreciated.